0: A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you this morning for the gifts of your word. And God, we thank you for the promises that we just read. So as we dig into this text, Lord, we ask that your spirit would fill us, that you would Uh, Give us a sense of of holy longing, of eager expectation for those promises to come to fruition. Father, we pray that your spirit this morning would fix our eyes on Jesus. May he be our hope, our joy, and our peace. It's in his great name we pray. Amen. Well, I heard a comedian recently declare that he drinks goat milk. And he very quickly then explained that by goat milk, he meant greatest of all time milk, meaning cow's milk, <laughs> which I have to agree. Now, it seems in, in recent years that people have been obsessed with finding the goat. Right? This, this largely happens in the world of sports. Right? We want to know who the greatest of all time basketball player is, who the greatest of all time football player is, or baseball player, or boxer. And when we're done debating that, then we break it down by positions, right? So we want to know who the greatest uh, tight end was, the greatest quarterback, the greatest power hitter, the greatest pitcher. And while the term GOAT, greatest of all time, is, is relatively recent, right? It's in the last 10, 20 years that it's become uh, more and more common. But that quest to find the best is not recent at all. And this summer, the, the movie Elvis came out. And Elvis was, of course, the king of rock and roll. Now we have Michael Jackson, the king of pop. We are obsessed with trying to find someone who stands above the rest, someone to follow, someone to venerate. And I think that that obsession points to a deep desire within us to have a king, to have someone who will come and set the standard, to have someone to come and set everything right. Well, friends, the good news that we observe in this passage is that that is exactly what God intends to provide. A king is coming, a future king whose reign will be characterized by wisdom, by power, by justice, and by peace, to the degree that, as we read in verse 6, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. So this morning we're going to take a look at this future king, and from this text we're going to look at three qualities of that king that the future king will come from the line of David, that his reign will be filled, or excuse me, that he will be filled with the Spirit, and that this king will bring peace. So our first point is that the future, co- that the future king will come from the line of David. Right, we see this point made in verse 1. There we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, these words come to us from the prophet Isaiah, who lived about 700 years before Jesus came uh, came to dwell with us. And he was alive during a relatively difficult time in Israel's history. He is a prophet in the southern kingdom of Israel. And as you may recall, after the reign of Solomon, the, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two different nations. You had Israel in the north composed of ten tribes and Judah in the south composed of two tribes. And uh, Isaiah was, was in the south writing in Judah at a time that was very precarious for them. He lived from, or he was writing between uh, the years about 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. He oversaw uh, the reign of four different kings in Judah. And during that time, he watched the Assyrian Empire rise up and actually wipe out the northern Kingdom. And they posed a constant threat to the southern kingdom as well. It was a a time of of turmoil, a time of anxiety. And as I mentioned, he he oversaw or he saw the reign of of four different kings in the southern kingdom. And nice for him, three of those kings were considered righteous by biblical standards. Uh, Only one was kind of a stinker. But Judah had 20 different kingdoms, or excuse me, 20 different kings in the divided kingdom, and only eight of those kings were considered righteous. So 12 of them were wicked kings. And so Israel was constantly doing this back and forth. We've got a guy who's righteous for now, and then a guy who leads us astray, and a guy who's righteous for now, and another guy who leads us astray. And so by the time Isaiah is writing, he's looking at the kings who have come. And he's looking at, his, at the kings specifically in Judah who were descendants of the great king David. Right? They were in the Davidic line. And what does he say of them here in verse 1? That they have been reduced essentially to a stump. A shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse. This was a difficult and anxious time. And likely a time where people would have called God's word and his promises into question. Now there's one specific promise that I'm I'm talking about here, and and that goes back about 300 years before the time of Isaiah. This was a promise given to King David. See, David was a great king and a mighty warrior, and he expanded the nation's borders and was consistently able to defeat the, the enemies of Israel. And God promised David in 2 Samuel 7.16 that his house and his kingdom would be made sure forever and that David's throne would be established forever. God promised David an everlasting kingdom. But now 300 years removed from that promise, again, Isaiah is looking at the line of David and what does he call it? He calls it a stump. It appeared to be dead and lifeless. And once the northern kingdom fell, the people in the south likely figured that it would only be a matter of time before their kingdom fell as well. The same fate would befall Judah. But God, through the prophet Isaiah, says that despite what may happen, despite geopolitical events, that he would remain true to his promise. That from the stump would come a shoot. God is saying, don't give up hope, for there there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. God promised to bring about new life, a shoot from something dead, a stump, in order to remain faithful to his promise. No No matter how hopeless the situation appeared, God was going to remain faithful to his promises and he did. See, we have the privilege of getting to look at this promise after it's been at least partially fulfilled. Who was the king? Who was the shoot that came from the stump of Jesse? Friends, it was Jesus. Matthew begins his telling of the story of Jesus with a genealogy, and in Matthew 1.1 we read, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew then spends the next 16 verses tracing Jesus' lineage back to David and even further back to Abraham. And he does this to show, again, that God remains faithful to his promises. And this is a reminder that we need to hear today as well. That despite how hopeless things appear to be, God remains faithful to his promises. God doesn't accomplish his purposes through a series of do-overs, right? I'm going I'm to do this, and no, I don't really like how this is turning out, and now I'm going to switch gears and go over here. No, despite appearances, despite how we might be experiencing things, our God works in an intentional way. And when he promises to do something, he will carry it out. It may look different than we expected, but our God remains faithful. So I think it's worth considering for a moment, are there places where you are questioning God's intentionality right now? Are there places where you are inclined to doubt God's promises? His promise that he is working all things together for good. His promise that he will never leave you or forsake you. His promise that if you placed your faith in Jesus, that you will be presented on the last day blameless in him. Friends, there are times when those promises seem impossible. But here we need that reminder. Our God remains faithful to his promises despite appearances. Our God is able to bring life out of things that appear to be dead. He can do do the impossible. So we see this future king will come from the line of David. But not only that, this future king will be filled with the Spirit. And we see this promise in verses 2 through 5. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The Spirit of God will rest upon this king, and as a result, his reign will be characterized by wisdom, might, and justice. Now, wisdom is a necessary attribute of any leader, But unfortunately, it appears to be an attribute that is severely lacking in our culture today. And part of what makes this reality so troubling is that we tend to be unaware of our own lack of wisdom. Uh, A while back, there were a couple of social psychologists at Cornell who tried to measure people's awareness of their own ignorance. (laughs) And they did so by experimenting on undergraduates at the university. So what they did is they gave students a series of quizzes and at the end they asked these students, you know, how do you think you did? Or more specifically, in what percentile did you land? That is, what percentage of your peers, of of other people who took the same quiz, did you beat? Did you do better than? And these researchers found that those with the lowest scores usually thought that they were performing in the 60th, 65th, or 70th percentile. So that means that, not that they thought that they got, you know, 60, 65, or 70 on the quiz, no, they thought that they beat out 60, 65, or 70 people, anyway, they thought that they they performed better than a majority of the people who were taking the same quiz. In short, there seemed to be a direct correlation between incompetence and an overweening sense of self-confidence. And this, unfortunately, proved to be a repeatable finding. It's known as the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is basically a scientific way of calling someone not so smart. And over the years, researchers have run the same experiment in different ways over and over again, and the results have been pervasive. So competitive debaters who were doing badly didn't know that they were doing badly. Uh, People at chess tournaments, same thing. Trap and skeet shooters when quizzed on gun safety? Uh, medical professionals? Medical professionals? Uh, kind of troubling. Uh, one study of medical interns found that uh, with certain exercises, such as catheterization procedures, 80% of interns thought that they knew t- the techniques so well that they could train others, while 0% of their supervisors felt the same way. <laughs> Wisdom is essential, but it is often scarce. But this is not the case, thankfully, with Jesus. One of the things that you see regularly in the Gospels is that people, opponents of Jesus, come to him over and over again. And they try to trick Jesus. Right? They try to, to, to get him to trip over his words or to, to step in some sort of uh, you know, verbal landmine. And every single time, Jesus completely turns the tables on them. Uh, There's a succession of such challenges in Luke's gospel, in chapter 20 of his gospel, where the the Pharisees come to Jesus, the Sadducees come to Jesus, the Herodians come to Jesus, and they're all coming coming at him in different angles, trying to get him to slip up. And every single time, he ends up making them look foolish. And so that series ends with these words in Luke chapter 20, then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Friends, Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 1.24, is the wisdom of God. But not only does Jesus possess the spirit of wisdom, he also has the spirit of might. He not only knows what should be done, he has the power. To carry it out. And what a contrast that is to the rulers of this world, isn't it? I think many people take for granted the fact that elected officials will not be able to come through on a great deal of the promises that get them into office. They either don't have the bipartisan support, the budget, or the actual authority to do the things that they say they are going to do. Friends, that is not the case with Jesus, thankfully. And not to just put that on on politicians, this happens with us too, doesn't it? Aren't there situations in your life where you know exactly what you should do, but you just can't do it? You either don't have the ability, you don't have the tool or like the self-control to make yourself do the thing. I know I should go to the gym, I'm not going to go to the gym, right? Wisdom is a wonderful thing, but without the power to act on it, it doesn't get you very far. But Jesus thankfully does not have that problem for he's not only the wisdom of God, he's also the power of God. And we see the spirit of might embodied throughout Jesus' ministry. He heals the sick. He He feeds multitudes from scraps. He casts out demons. He raises the dead. He stops storms merely by speaking, causing his disciples to question who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. His power was undeniable to the point where even a Pharisee named Nicodemus, at great personal risk to himself, sought Jesus out in the middle of the night and declared to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus has the spirit of wisdom. He has the spirit of might. And thankfully, the Spirit also gives Jesus the the, the power to execute justice. Verses 3-5 through once again, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins jesus unlike so many of the rulers that we have seen throughout history shows no partiality in his judgments he won't be swayed by power or riches and as a result his decisions for the poor and needy will be marked by equity He won't let evil go unchecked, but he defends the weak and he strikes the earth with the rod of his mouth, meaning the truth of his word. Wisdom, power, and justice come together in Jesus. So King Jesus will come from the line of David, or he comes from the line of David. He's filled with the Spirit. And finally, he will bring peace. Let's look at verses 6 through 9 together. shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A few years back, Katie and I got really into the the BBC documentary series Planet Earth. I don't know if any of you've seen that, Uh, but it was amazing. It was extremely well done um, and just fascinating to learn about how incredible our planet really is and how creative our God is. And to this day, I still can't be out in nature without hearing David Attenborough in the back of my head. (laughs) There were aspects of the show that that were that were kind of hard for me, and it was um, my my troubles were typically centered around the predator-prey dynamics that were uh, that were often observed. There were many instances in which you'd be introduced to an animal like a gazelle and you get to hear you know, the gazelle's backstory. You, you meet his mother and his wife and children, and you know, all the ways in which this gazelle is just, just working so hard to make ends meet. You form, you form empathy for the gazelle, and an and attachment to him. And then the camera inevitably pans out, and you see a cheetah. And you think, no cheetah, bad. But then, then you learn about the cheetah's backstory too. And, you know. If, if the cheetah doesn't get to eat this gazelle, then the cheetah's gonna die, and you just don't know who to root for. It's like this emotional roller coaster. It's tough. But, friends, it all goes to show that nature can be brutal. But when this future king comes, the brutality of nature will cease. Wolves, lambs, leopards, goats, lions, and children all live together in harmony. Rather than competing with one another for for resources and food, these animals share their lives and their resources. In other words, the prey in each of these situations listed in this passage won't live in fear. They would not feel a sense of danger. The world would experience true peace. Peace. See, what's being described here is the restoration of shalom. See, shalom is a a Hebrew word that's often translated as peace, but it is so much more than that. It means restoration or wholeness. The writer Ashley Hales puts it this way. She says, Shalom is the word we reach for to talk about justice, mercy, and the God-honoring relationship between people, places, and things. It's the interconnectedness that we long for. It's the satiation of desire and longing. It's the proper relationship between earth, humankind, and our work. Our word shalom points to the acceptance, unity, peace, flourishing, and rightness of the created order that God originally intended and to which we are moving. This is what Jesus brings. Now, you might be thinking, this future king came, and I am still not letting my children play with cobras. And you should not. That's not a good idea yet. But in the season of Advent, we look back and forward. We put ourselves in the position of the Israelites as they awaited the coming Messiah, the one who had been promised all the way back in the garden. See, in Genesis 3.15, we have the first glimpses of the gospel. That the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. It was at this time, right, it was in the garden that Shalom was ruptured for the first time. So as Adam and Eve were cast out of paradise, God gave them this promise. That one day someone would come and would lead them back, would lead us back. So generation after generation looked forward to the one who was to come, and 2,000 years ago, he did. Out of his great love, Jesus came and began the process of restoring shalom by defeating what causes its breakdown, namely sin. Jesus came and identified with our sin. He identified with our weakness, and he took on its consequences and his death on the cross, but he was raised victorious, triumphing over those great enemies in his resurrection. And when he did that, he began the process of restoring shalom. Because of him, we can experience, even now, true peace in our hearts, because we can know that we are loved and accepted by God. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So in Advent, we placed ourselves back in the position of those who are waiting for Jesus' first coming. And we celebrate God's faithfulness to his promises. And this then gives us hope that the fullness of those promises will come to fruition, that Jesus will return as he said he would, and that shalom would be truly restored. That there will come a day when the wolf will lie down with the lamb and that the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And how do we know that Jesus is really able to accomplish this? Well, I think the key is in verse 10. There we read, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. All right. The designation of this future king changes in verse 10, doesn't it? In verse 1, it's a shoot That's going to come from the stump of Jesse. But in verse 10, it's a root. It's hard to think of something that is a shoot, you know, new life sprouting, that is also a root. But Jesus himself points this out in a different Old Testament text. In Matthew 22, we read this. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, "'What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he?' They said to him, "'The son of David.'" All right, So they're answering in accordance with what we've talked about so far, that the king who was to come would come from the line of David. He would be David's son. And Jesus, is, Jesus essentially affirms this. He says, you're right. But then looking to Psalm 110, he asks them this question. How is it then that David in the Spirit, so saying the David, human author, writing by the power of the Holy Spirit, who doesn't get things wrong, David in the Spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus is asking the Pharisees and Sadducees this question. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we, we learn the Messiah will be the son of David. David himself affirms that in many different places. David is the one who received that promise from God in, Sam, in 2 Samuel 7. So he's not confused about what that means. But David himself goes on to say in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. So somehow, his son, his descendant, is also over him and before him. His son and descendant is also his Lord. Friends, those two truths that seem contradictory to our three and a half pound fallen brains, they come together perfectly in Jesus. Jesus is the God-man. He is the son of David and David's Lord. He is the shoot and he is the root. Verse 45, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So stumping the Pharisees who are questioning him. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus shuts it down. But again, Jesus is the shoot and the root, the son and the Lord. He is God and man. He connects those dots that you see dispersed throughout the Old Testament. And as such, because he is Son and Lord, God and man, he is able to deliver on the promises that no merely human ruler ever carried. As man, he is able to identify with our sins, to take care of the problem of our sin in a way that that God can't be acquainted with. But as God, He has the power, the ability to restore all things, to recreate. This is why He has both the wisdom and the power to carry out what He says He'll do. It is only because Jesus is both God and man that we can know in our bones that he's going to bring shalom so what does that mean for you right now what sort of impact what difference does that make uh, over uh thanksgiving my family went up to up to ventura and we spent uh thanksgiving day with my parents and uh, my mom was was telling us at dinner how she's gotten very into watching warriors basketball games um, my, my brother lives up in the Bay Area, and uh, my nephew is a huge Warriors fan. So my mom, as a way to connect with, uh, with you know, her oldest grandson, now watches the Warriors. But she's saying that as she's gotten older, she, she finds that she can't really handle stress in the same way that she used to. So she really wants to watch these games, but if she just watches them live, she's just this like, ball of anxiety. And so she has since started watching Warriors games the next day, so that she can watch them knowing the outcome of the game. That's the only way that she can actually enjoy the game and and just relax and, and know what's going to happen. Well, friends, our text this morning tells us the end of the game. Our text tells us where history is headed. There will come a day when God's kingdom will come to fruition. Where when when shalom will be restored, conflict will cease, suffering will end, and the knowledge of God will cover the waters or cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We know the outcome of the game. So I'd encourage you to stop right now and think. What is keeping you up at night right now? What is causing anxiety and tension in your heart? What are some problems that you're facing that that you feel like you either don't have the wisdom or if you do have the wisdom, that you don't have the power to address? Think about those things. And as you do so, allow yourself to believe, even if it's just for right now, that Jesus will bring shalom. seriously consider, what are you facing right now? Is there a relationship in turmoil? Are you just stressed out because this is a stressful season of the year? Is there something happening at work that you just don't know how to face? To all of those problems, remind yourself, Jesus brings shalom. Jesus is my peace. Allow yourself to believe these promises that one day the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. Allow yourself to believe that one day mourning and pain will cease, that suffering will end, and that Jesus himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Friends, that is the promise of Advent. That is what we that's what we look back to and forward to. Our looking back gives us hope. It, it assures us that God will come through, that he will do what he has promised. So I don't know what's going to happen in, in the, the particular situation that you're facing, in, in the particular thing that is stressing you out right now, but I do know the final score the game has been decided. Jesus wins. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for the gift of your son, our king, Jesus. So that we ask you that we ask that you would help us to look to him especially in this season. Father, may he be our peace. May he be our hope. Enable us by your Spirit, God, to trust, to trust that he will bring peace, that he will bring shalom, that our troubles don't get the last word, but that there will come a day when mourning and pain will cease, that suffering will end, and we will get to feast with you in your house. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.